Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I want Margaret to first move. Fantastic to have you with us just ahead this hour. China's crisis. CNN takes an exclusive look inside the post-lockdown emergency in the world's second largest economy. The death toll clearly rising, even as Beijing plays down the scale of the suffering. Plus, Disney's drama, The Troubled House of Mouse, getting a new board chairman from the upper echelons of Nike, no less, as it gears up for a fresh revolt from investor Nelson Peltz, who says the Magic Kingdom has lost its sparkle. And inflation transformation, the latest pricing pressure gauge just released here in the United States and CPI, as it's known, slowing for a six straight month to an expected six and a half percent year over year rate. That's down from over seven percent in November. It's, of course, still at historically high levels, but the lowest rate of consumer inflation, in fact, in more than a year. And the big headline grammar is the month over month reading, which fell in December. Why do we Really care about that. Well, that's the first drop there in almost two years. Lower oil prices, a key factor for that. The core rate of inflation, which of course strips out volatile food and energy, perfectly in line with estimates too. We've got all the details coming up, but for now, the stock market reaction, well, it was initially disappointed. Now it's just plain volatile. To be fair, stocks, of course, had powered ahead this week already in anticipation of a softer pricing picture. And we also did not get a further downside surprise. We're expecting a lot at the moment. European stocks, in the meantime, still on a new year tear, with UK stocks edging ever closer to record highs. And we saw fresh gains across the Asia session, too, with the Hang Seng outperforming. Investors continuing to look beyond China's health crisis to the economic boost that will come from those lockdown lifts. And commodity price is also a key beneficiary of that reopening play. Both Brent and U.S. crude currently up by almost 2 percent. Goldman Sachs believes oil could hit $100 a barrel later this year as China's economy ramps up. That could, of course, mean a further inflationary pulse later this year. Now, as we mentioned at the top of the show, U.S. consumer prices figures showing inflation easing again at the end of 2022. Matt Egan joins us now with all the details. Matt, great to have you with us. I think investors actually were hoping for more. It's still at lofty levels, but it is coming down. The direction of movement's right. What does it mean for the Federal Reserve too? Well, Julie, you know, it does increasingly look like this inflation fire is getting under control. I mean, it is still a problem, but it's getting better. We now have six straight months of cooling inflation at the annual level, a six and a half percent. You know, that's not healthy, of course, but it is miles away from the nine point one percent peak of last June. Um, This is actually the lowest level of year-over-year inflation in the United States in 14 months. Month-over-month prices declined for the first time since this inflation crisis began. So what are the drivers? Well, you can see on your screen energy up, but that has been easing. In fact, gasoline prices were down, and that was huge. Shelter 
that is still a problem that is heating up. And then we got to talk about food because food prices remain very high. You can see over 10% increase year over year. Um, and some of the big drivers include the price of eggs. A lot of people are talking about these skyrocketing prices, um, not just in the United States, but overseas as well. And the latest reading on eggs show that they were up by almost 60% year over year in December. That is the biggest annual increase, according to the BLS, since September of 1973. So I think that is another reminder here of how, yes, things are getting better. Yes, energy prices have cooled off, but there are still some problems here, Julia. Yeah, and uh, especially painful for those that spend the majority of their income on things like food and energy and rent, as you saw there. Those prices still increasingly or increasing and at at a significant rate. Matt, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, another Russian military reshuffle. President Putin replacing his commanding general in Ukraine again. It follows claims from Russian-backed mercenaries that their forces have captured the town of Solidar in the Donetsk region. Ukraine continues to refute that claim. CNN's Ben Weidman joins us now from the city of Kramatorsk in the Donetsk region. Ben, you can tell us what's going on there, but I do want to talk about that reshuffle once again in terms of military command over in Russia. That's the top commander, I believe, in Ukraine being demoted after just, what, three months in control. moment. The Russian military has had sort of months of disasters going back to the retreat from the Kyiv region, then their uh, defeat in the Kharkiv area, and finally Kherson. So clearly the Russian military leadership feels something must be done to improve the situation. But what they've done is appointed Valery Garasimov, who uh, since 2012 has been the chief of the military staff he was the one who oversaw the initial Ukrainian invasion, uh, rather Russian invasion of Ukraine, which obviously didn't end particularly well, or rather at least the first uh, phase of it. But clearly they are looking to somehow change the leadership situation to improve the military performance. Julia? And uh, Ben, talk to me about what else has been taking place and the importance of of Solidar and and what the latest is that we know there. There still seems to be disagreement, whether it's the Kremlin, the Ukrainians, those uh, militant forces, the Wagmar group over who exactly is in control. Well, we were just on the outskirts of Solidar yesterday, and it's clear uh, from what we heard, we spoke, for instance, to medics who are taking uh, wounded soldiers from Solidar itself. So the Ukrainians still do seem to control part of the city, but they are under unrelenting attack by Russian forces. Medics load a wounded soldier onto an ambulance. Another casualty from the embattled town of Solidar. It varies depending on the number of casualties on the front lines. Russian forces, mostly troops from the Wagner Group, the private military company, claim to have control of the entire Solidar territory. The battle for Solidar may be in its final stages and it doesn't appear to be going well for the Ukrainians. And if indeed the Russians do emerge victorious, the villages around it may be the next to fall.
Ukraine's helicopters still flying sorties, its forces aren't giving ground easily. One soldier says it's difficult, but we're hanging in there. Despite the fighting, Ira is staying put with her pigs and cows in her home in a nearby village. We won't leave, she says. You can only die once. I will not abandon my house. Her 81-year-old mother, Ludmila, has lived here for more than 40 years. We had a good life here, she says. Sergei Goshko heads the Solidar military administration. I'm delivering aid, he says, and reminding people they need to evacuate before it's too late. Svitlana says she'll heed his call. Everyone is tired, she tells me. We can't take it any longer. As Solidar burns, there is little time to waste. And we've been in touch with officials in the Soledad region. They're trying to arrange evacu evacuations of the approximately 500 civilians still left in that town, but they tell us that the road they were hoping to use is under Russian bombardment. Julia? Yeah, no easy choices for those people. Ben, thank you so much for that report there. Ben, we've been there joining us from Kramatorsk in Ukraine. Meanwhile, over in Russia, President Putin has begun 2023 by warning Russian citizens to prefer, prepare for a long and costly battle in Ukraine. Now the war's economic toll is showing in the Russian budget, as Claire Sebastian reports. More than 10 months into a war that he hoped to wrap up in days, President Putin is preparing his people for a long and costly battle. We have no limits when it comes to financing. The country, the government, gives the army everything it asks for. It's not just the high-tech drones and tanks or the new frigate loaded with hypersonic missiles. According to an estimate in July from British think tank Rusi, at the height of the fighting in the Donbass, Russia was burning through more ammunition in two days than the British military has in stock. The impact of that clearly showing up in the Russian budget. Now, this was the official estimate for last year. Defence spending was expected to have grown by about 30% compared to 2021. National security spending, meanwhile, by about 20%. But oil and gas revenues were expected to grow by about a third. They ended up coming in higher than expected, according to the finance ministry. But so did spending, tipping the budget into a bigger than expected deficit. Now, this year, we're looking at more defence spending, a rise of about 6%. That's roughly in line with inflation. But add to that a 58% planned increase in national security spending and a complete reversal of last year's oil and gas windfall. And this means budget cuts. Roads, agriculture, even healthcare all getting hit. Money is not infinite, unlike what uh, President Putin says. And I think he understands it's better than anybody else. Because these authorities were in, in power already in the 90s. When Russia went through severe crisis, default, denomination, you know, devalu devaluation. And I think they remember that it's that if that were to happen, it will be even faster way for them out of the office. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Keeping Putin in power and fighting a war is expensive. Next year, Russia has allocated almost as much to national security, which also includes law enforcement as it has to defense, according to the budget passed early last month. 
a sign Moscow may still intensify its crackdown on protest and dissent. We all know that European solidarity... And yet experts say even with an EU embargo on Russian seaborne oil, a price cap mechanism in place and lower energy prices, Russia is not facing an imminent budget crisis. Well, we did not implement energy sanctions up until now, right? The embargo just came in. So what happened, Russian uh, current account surpluses last year was more than 200 billion. So if you think about it, if you arrested about, say, roughly 300 billion in reserves... Russia already accumulated more than 200 billion just last year. Pressure is still mounting. If the EU and G7 lower their oil price cap below $60 a barrel, that would likely hurt revenues. And technology sanctions make it harder for Russia to modernize its military. Still behind the propaganda, it's clear Russia has a financial plan to fund this war, even as its people pay an ever-increasing price. Claire Sebastian, CNN, London. And from one human cost to another, and that is the cost of a hasty U-turn. China's sudden ending of its zero-COVID policy now leading to a significant rise in pressure on hospitals, funeral homes and crematoriums across the nation. Selena Wang saw the evidence for herself. COVID lockdowns may be over in China, but for many, there's misery at the end of zero-COVID. The virus is overwhelming hospitals across the country. The sick struggle to get help. Patients crammed into every available space, every hallway and corner of this northern Chinese hospital. Not everyone survives the struggle. Rows of bodies filled this funeral home storage room in Liaoning province, though we don't know how many died of COVID. In Jiangsu, families in mourning clothes flood the gate. And in Sichuan, families line up outside right next to coffins, waiting to cremate their loved ones. China has only officially reported a few dozen COVID-19 deaths since reopening. But satellite images confirm the different reality we see on the ground. These images, taken in late December and early January, show crowds and long lines of cars waiting outside of funeral homes in six Chinese cities. The images from the outskirts of Beijing show that a brand new parking lot was even constructed. We visited that funeral home rows of cars were already there. I'm now standing in that new parking lot of this Beijing funeral home. This entire parking lot area did not exist a month ago. And as you can see, the roads are not paved. One van pulls in, unloads a body and another follows. A man tells me he waited hours for his brother's body to be cremated. But the wait is nothing, he says, compared to the crowds from a few weeks ago. Experts say Beijing's COVID outbreak has already peaked. In December, we filmed these body bags piling up in metal crates at another Beijing crematorium during the height of Omicron's spread in the city. This video CNN has obtained was filmed by a man who said his father's body was lying in this overflowing Beijing hospital morgue for days. He said his father waited hours for hospital bed space. By the time a bed opened up, it was too late. Cities are now scrambling to set up fever clinics and increase ICU capacity. For weeks, it was nearly impossible to buy cold or fever medicine. They were all sold out because of the huge demand. Drug companies like this major pharmaceutical manufacturer in Beijing, they are going into overdrive to increase supply after there was a shortage of medicine to treat COVID-19 symptoms. I asked the vice president if they had received any advance warning from the government that they were going to abandon zero COVID so they could prepare to ramp up production. 
Well, he didn't directly answer my question, but it's clear that now they are doubling down. The company told us they simply follow government policy. The drug shortage, overflowing hospitals and crematoriums, they're images of a country unprepared for the sudden end of zero COVID. So many families in mourning are questioning what their three years of sacrifice during zero COVID was really all for. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move, powering India's renewable energy ambitions. We speak to the CEO working to fast-track the nation's power mix. We knew it's coming up next. Welcome back to First Move, a volatile pre-market session after the release of today's inline but encouraging to U.S. consumer inflation report for December. Stock futures currently pretty flat or relatively flat. Actually, no, take a look at that now. Even just in the last five or ten minutes, we are now up some six tenths of one percent for the Nasdaq. Um, on the news that the pain at the checkout lane eased for a sixth straight month here in the U.S. Consumer price is actually falling a tenth of a percent month over month, too. That's actually the first time that's happened since the spring of 2020. This is the last CPI report before the U.S. Federal Reserve meets again later this month. Markets have been hoping that the Fed will continue to slow the pace of rate hikes and boost by only a quarter of a percentage point this time around. Today's number perhaps might advance that argument. That said, Federal Reserve members continue to insist that they will raise rates throughout the year, irrespective of the size. JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon taking them at their word. He says a 6% base rate, not out of the question. HSBC, though, is an outlier. It believes we'll see just one more half a percent hike, and that's it. As we say in the news business, one and done. Christina Hooper joins us now. She's Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco and joins us now. Christina, Happy New Year. Great to have you on the show. What do you make of today's inflation reading? Perhaps the motion of movement, the direction of movement here is perhaps the bigger issue. It's great to be with you. Happy New Year. And this is a great way to start the new year. Um, this was certainly not um, a great CPI report. But it was a good one. Uh, it met expectations, slightly exceeded them, and shows that inflation is moving in the right direction. But it raises the question, how much is enough for the Fed? Um, because markets are excited about this, um, but the Fed might not believe it's enough. I'm of the opinion that it will believe we're moving in the right direction. And that combined um, with some concerning data that shows um, the impact of tightening on economic activity. And I'm pointing to the ISM PMI reading we got last Friday that showed new orders dropping more than 10 points might give the Fed pause, um, no pun intended, and um, uh, encourage them to hit the pause button by the end of the first quarter. Wow. Okay, we'll come back to that. But are you saying then for at least the next interest rate meeting, you're in the camp that says they may just go a quarter of a percentage point? I do. I think the most likely scenario is 25 basis points at this upcoming meeting and then another 25 basis points in March and then they're done. Wow. 
So that would take us, I'm just quickly doing the maths, to four and three quarters to 5% in terms of base rates. I mean, that's way off what JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon was saying, which is that they may need to go above 6%. Is it that softening that you're seeing that you mentioned within the data that you think that they're going to look and compare the inflationary forecasts and profile versus the growth outlook and make that decision? And perhaps that's now where the focus concentrates, the growth perhaps, rather than the prices. Well, I think growth will um, become an increasing concern over the course of the year. What we saw was fast and furious tightening in 2022. And it takes time for that to show up in the economic data. So we don't know how how much damage the Fed has done uh, to U.S. demand, to U.S. economic activity. But we did get a little insight in that report that I referenced last week. So I certainly think that's a growing consideration. But I also think that we can't take the Fed at its word um, because it is responding to data and it, it continues to be committed to being data dependent. Um, so even though they're talking tough now, um, that's a result of concerns that that um, financial conditions might ease too much prematurely. Um, mm. So they have to have to be hawkish in their rhetoric. Um, but that does not suggest to me um, that that we can assume they're getting anywhere near six percent. I just wonder what it means too, even if you're correct and that they do signal and indeed pause in the first quarter of this year, do rates then stay steady for the rest of the year to your point that they don't then want to perhaps ease off um, and reduce some of the tightening that they've done before they're very sure that inflation is going to come down the the, the way that they're hoping to. And I guess the, the offshoot to that is how do stocks react? How do bonds react? And how should investors react in that environment? Well, that will be one of the kind of key questions that are asked and answered this year is, will the Fed actually start cutting? Um, I think they are inclined to not cut this year. Uh, I think they'd like to get to a point um, where they can stay for the year. However, that is subject to change. And above all else, the Fed is data dependent. So how will stocks react if the Fed doesn't cut? Um, Well, it's a mixed bag because if the Fed doesn't cut, it means that there hasn't been enough damage to the U.S. economy. Uh, So I would anticipate that after uh, a rally fueled by uh, a Fed pause, what we're likely to see is a more stable uh, stock market that doesn't move up a lot this year um, because there's not a lot to drive it. Um, It won't be seeing uh, a reduction in the Fed funds rate, um, but the economy will be relatively solid. So we're unlikely to see a dramatic uh, earnings uh, revision um, period. Um, We'll certainly see some downward uh, revisions to earnings, um, but nothing dramatic, assuming that we don't see a a lot of damage to the economy. I mean, right now, we're just trying to figure out how much has been done because of of this really extraordinary level of tightening. Yeah, I feel like we've been in that in that state now, really, for for sort of two and a half years, perhaps even longer since the pandemic, just to understand what the impact that the sort of knock on impact of whether it's monetary policy now or or fiscal policy. um, And and you just have to wait for that. There's just that time lag that that you discussed. We just showed very briefly um, your investor resolutions for this year. And I was gratified to see that you do think overall, though, 2023 will be a better year for investors than than 2022. Just briefly, because I have about a minute left. Um, Those resolutions for investors this year, what should they keep in mind? 
Well, I think above all else, investors need to understand that they shouldn't be fearful, um, that this is the kind of environment we should have expected, given all that we've experienced over the last few years. They have been extraordinary and extraordinarily difficult times um, for the economy, for markets, um, for central banks. Um, so stick with a plan. Think about the long term. Don't be rattled. Um, probably the best, best lesson we learned from the global financial crisis was to not get scared and get out um, because mm -hmm. that essentially enables um, investors uh, to lock in losses um, and, and prevents them from participating in any recovery. Um, so, so stick with the long term. Um, sometimes that's harder, um, but try not to listen to the noise. Have a plan. Be very well diversified. Um, uh, that's also an important part of this. Um, different asset classes will perform differently in different monetary policy environments, in different economic environments. Uh, so so that's, that's an important part of, of the process as well. And of course, um, try to save and invest more. That's always a good New Year's resolution. <laughs> yes, it is. I definitely feel calmer for speaking to you in January each year. So um, <laughs> that's good news. Christina, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist there at Invesco. Welcome back to First Move. Disney naming Nike's executive chairman Mark Parker as its new chairman. It's taking over the Disney board as the company prepares for a proxy battle with billionaire activist investor Nelson Peltz. Paula Monica joins me now. That's not the only challenge, of course, that Disney faces. Mark Parker, not to be mistaken for Peter Parker, of course, because that's Spider-Man. What do we know about this gentleman other than his leadership at Nike? He certainly gets the importance of finding a CEO at Disney fast. Exactly. And I think, Julia, that really is the most pressing concern for Disney right now. Bob Chapek being forced out. Remember, he succeeded Bob Iger, who is back as CEO at Disney. Oh, yeah, Bob Iger. That is not a permanent solution. So I think that Iger and Parker, again, not Spidey, although Disney does own Marvel after all, uh, you know, they need to go and figure out who needs to lead the company for the long haul? And is it yet another internal candidate, someone at Disney already, perhaps in the Marvel Studios or other uh, movie businesses? Or is it someone external? Disney has not hired an outsider in a very long time. Iger obviously succeeding Michael Eisner. So I think that's the big question right now, whether or not Disney needs fresh blood, new blood, or if there's someone within the company that Mark Parker can identify as the logical successor for the long term for Bob Iger so that Iger doesn't have to come back for a third time. Yeah. And counting. Um, the other thing about Parker, of course, as well, is that he's been on the board since 2016. So he understands, you presume, the sheer challenges that the entire industry faces, whether it's a high cost, the disruption of streaming, just predicting, quite frankly, what happens going uh, here on out. Last year, turbulent year for all of these names. Not really. Much hasn't really changed this year, unless you look at the share price, because they're having a, a renaissance. What do you make of the sort of bounce back that we're seeing in, in all of these shares? Quite frankly. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating, Julia. Obviously, the uh, the broader market has had a, a nice start to 2023, uh, you know, a decent rebound. But you're right. Shares of Netflix have really surged. I think there are hopes that the company is turning things around, that the advertising model might work for them. And also, let's be honest, I wrote a story yesterday about how the weaker dollar 
could be a boost for Netflix and other multinational firms. Netflix really harped in their uh, third quarter earnings report on how uh, the strong dollar at the time in 2022 was hurting profits and sales. So now that the dollar has been declining versus many other global currencies, you would think that that should help Netflix and other multinational companies, including those in the media business. Oh, that's such a great point. Yeah, the higher value of their overseas earnings as the dollar strength sort of peters back or pulls back versus some of these foreign currencies. A great point. Uh, Paula Monica, always great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, from one top-level shake-up to another, this time involving COP28. The head of one of the world's largest oil producers has been named president of the climate summit that takes place in Dubai later this year. The United Arab Emirates appointed Sultan al-Jabba to the position. Jabba also served as special envoy for climate change for the Gulf state. Becky Anderson joins us now. Firstly, Becky, fantastic to have you with us. Um, I've seen some lively comments, quite frankly, um, about this choice, but... He also does, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, head up their renewable energy investments too. And, and quite frankly, this is where the money's generated. And if we don't have money for the transition, it's not happening. What do we make of this decision? You're up. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Look, on the face of it, this is a controversial move. The present mm. de designate of COP28, the first serving oil executive ever to take on the lead role in shaping the world's climate agenda. That isn't lost on climate activists. You'll have been, uh, you'll have been seeing the same comments that I am. They've already uh, seen big oil as having significant influence, uh, not least through the fossil fuel lobby at some of these big events. One NGO already calling for Dr. Sultan to step down as the CEO of the national oil company here, which is known as Adnoc. He's not going to step down, um, sources tell me, by the way. But drill down, and, and you're right to point out there is a deeper story here. This oil executive has been instrumental in shaping a cleaner energy pathway here in the UAE, one that is embedded, let me tell you, Julia, in the economic growth picture for the future as the country eventually weans itself off oil. Let me just give you a sense of uh, what he's been up to over the last sort of couple of decades. His first chief executive role was back in 2006 to launch Mazda. Now, this is what you were talking about, the country's renewables company, which is today the second largest renewable investor in the world. They had real first mover advantage. I remember um, when that was launched back in 2006 uh, and nobody was talking about renewables. Not many people outside of the industry were talking about renewables at the time. And they really got first mover advantage on that. He's also been the special envoy on climate change since 2020. And in 2021, you might remember, he was out front regionally in committing to net zero emissions by 2050. Have a listen to what Dr. Sultan said at a big oil and gas event or energy event here in the UAE in November of last year. At ADNOC, we have connected all our operations to zero carbon nuclear and solar power. We are electrifying our offshore operations to cut their carbon footprint in half. And we are pressing down harder and harder on our methane intensity, even though we already have one of the lowest levels in the world. Maximum energy, minimum emissions. And you will hear that line again. Um, maximum energy, minimum 
emissions. Look, let's just have a look at that. The argument here, and in many of the oil and gas producing countries around the region, is that if the last year has shown us anything, it is that energy security is a major issue. And unplugging the current energy system, they argue, before building a sufficiently robust alternative puts economic and climate progress at risk and doesn't allow for a fair and equitable transition for all. Look, this will not suit everyone for sure. But if you want buy-in from the industry and you want the industry's experience, it may just be that giving the energy industry fossil fuels included a seat at the top table, and that's what Dr. Sultana has at the COP28 meeting. That may just ensure some progress. And after all, it is progress that we need as the clock is ticking, Julia. Yeah, and quite frankly, it may be an unpopular um, view to provide, but I couldn't agree more. I think there's an argument to be made that we've underinvested in in fuel fossil fuels, gas, whatever it is in this transition period, and it left us very vulnerable with what's happened in the last year. Um, They need to be at the table like everyone else. Becky, thank you. Great to have you on. Becky Anderson there. Okay, coming up after the break from a new top boss at COP28 to renewable energy in India. I speak to the CEO of Renew Power, who's working to increase India's role in the fight against climate change. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move with an ongoing focus on the clean energy transition. In 2020, India was the world's third largest emitter of carbon dioxide by volume. That's according to the United Nations. And yet, thanks to vast investment in renewables, the nation can generate just over 40% of its power from clean sources. And that's where our next guest comes in. Renew Power is a major player in India's renewable energy market. With a portfolio that includes more than 120 wind, solar and hydro energy projects across nine Indian states, Renew says it's on track to reach net zero by 2040. The company recently joined forces with L&T, one of India's biggest engineering firms, to jointly develop, own and execute and operate green hydrogen projects in India, among many other projects. Now ahead of the World Economic Forum in Davos next week, Renew CEO says it's time for India to take the lead on climate action along with the United States. And Sumat Sinha is founder and CEO of Renew Power, and he joins us now. So fantastic to have you on the show. I'm very excited um, to get your views and to understand what you're doing. Too often we talk about the United States, what China's doing, what the EU's doing. We don't often talk about the ambitions of India. So spell it out for us, please. Where is your country headed? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Look, India is actually to our efforts on shaping and dealing with the climate change issue. Uh, India is a growing country. We're already, as you rightly said, the third largest emitter of carbon dioxide. And if we just continue to grow as we have been and follow the path that every other country has followed, which is really carbon intensive, then that would not be good for global climate change efforts. So in in that respect, it's actually very heartening that the Indian government has taken a very, very positive and robust view on really decarbonizing India as we grow further. Uh, The target the government has set is that by 2030, we should get to about a total capacity of 50% coming from non-fossil fuel sources uh, and really reducing the carbon intensity of of our GDP growth by a considerable amount, close to about 40%. Uh, 
and so I think uh, India is taking some very fundamental decisions uh, to essentially decarbonize our uh, future economic growth in a way that is really very helpful for global climate change efforts. So I think India has really taken the lead on, on really ramping up our, our renewable energy and our clean energy ambitions uh, in a way that is going to be very helpful for dealing with climate change in the future. It breaks down into to three things for me. It's, it's government policies and matching policies to the commitments that we've seen many nations around the world now pronounce. There's what the private sector can do and, and companies such as yourself can do to, to push us in this direction. And then for me too, what citizens themselves can do to perhaps help in that effort, particularly on the demand side of, uh, of energy. Um, Subhan, talk to me about that matching, because I know this is one of the things that you've said as we head towards COP28. You want to see more commitments from, from governments, such as the Indian government, but others as well, to match those commitments. But it also comes from the private sector, surely, too, because they have more ability, money at this moment, to engage in transition and provide transition finance. No, you're absolutely right. I think this is not a battle or a war that can be won by any one set of uh, society or, or the economy working by itself. It is something that requires an all of the all of the above kind of effort. Clearly, governments are important in shaping policies and setting ambitions. But ultimately, as you rightly said, it is the corporate sector that has to come through. Uh, we are the ones that actually have to make it happen on the ground. We're the ones that actually have to manufacture the equipment get it shipped to the sites, put it up, uh, make sure that we connect to the grid, um, you know, manufacture the power in a way that is uh, uh, less carbon emitting. Uh, and then, of course, we have to raise capital. And, you know, our, our, our colleagues on the financial side have to make sure that capital becomes available to make all of this happen because our sector is a capital-intensive sector. So I think all, uh, all parts of civil society have to come together. And I think the role of... Um, of individuals is also very important, as you rightly said, because ultimately, uh, you know, it, it depends on how we actually make decisions on our daily lives and so on. Uh, but equally, how we actually put pressure coming together on both governments and corporates to make sure that uh, everybody grows in a more decarbonized manner going mm. forward. So I think it really everybody has to come together in making this happen. Yeah, I mean, you wrote a brilliant op-ed in November last year and you were talking about this idea of jump-starting sort of corporate decarbonisation. Just tie that to your business and, and what you do at Renew. And I know you have all sorts of projects going on, but for me, the vision seems to be a way that, that you can provide a steady stream of, of power, energy to whoever requires it. And that comes from, from solar and wind. And we know there's challenges with the stability of that, be it geographical and be it timing. Yeah, look, I think uh, clean energy or supplying clean electricity, rather, to corporates really is the first step in their decarbonization journey. And I think it's the most, it's the easiest step for them to take. And, and the further uh, sort of benefit that corporates now have is that clean electricity generated from either wind or solar has now become cheaper than uh, any other source of electricity for them. Uh, essentially, electricity that they can buy from the grid. And so, therefore, it's really very much in both the commercial interest as well as in their overall uh, positioning themselves for the decarbonization journey standpoint to go for clean electricity. So I think that is something that most corporates are now looking at very seriously. And that's really what I was talking about, that we are now finding a lot of traction from corporates coming uh, to us and buying power directly from us, whether Indian com companies or companies from outside of India as well. Uh, but then beyond that, I think the whole um, 
Uh, evolution is happening very rapidly. Clearly, green hydrogen is a terrific opportunity to really broaden out the footprint in terms of carbon emission reductions in the broader energy sector value chain beyond just electricity. And we are seeing really shipping companies that generate almost 7 to 8% of global carbon emissions really moving rapidly in that direction as our steel companies, as our cement companies, and as our aviation companies. So those kinds of technological solutions are now becoming available uh, and are really rapidly evolving. Uh, and really basis, uh, you know, becoming uh, grounded on green hydrogen, all of these opportunities are, are really becoming quite viable. And I see the future unfolding fairly rapidly over the next two to three years. I think faster than, than a lot of us actually uh, tend to anticipate. So I think uh, corporates will really move forward and drive the decarbonization agenda, uh, I think, faster than we've actually anticipated so far. And that's really, really positive for all of us, I think. Wow. Um, I love your optimism. Um, I, mean, I think it's fantastic. And obviously, the Indian government, uh, with this latest um, approval, a $2.3 billion deal to, to try and make India a sort of nascent hub for, for green hydrogen technology. Talk to me just briefly, if you can, about your plans there and why you're such a believer in this. Because I was even at a conference in the middle of last year and the debate on this one was really high. There were plenty of people there that still aren't convinced that, that green hydrogen is the way to go. Why are you so convinced? Yeah, you know, first of all, just a word about the Indian government. Uh, clearly, under the uh, prime minister's leadership, uh, there is a really a very significant swing towards uh, really trying to become a leader in green energy and green energy technologies globally, which is why we're actually encouraging production of a lot of equipment, whether it's solar panels or wind turbines and now electrolyzers within India, so that India actually can emerge as a manufacturing hub for these kinds of uh, technologies and equipment and then become a supplier of, of equipment globally, in addition to what we are doing domestically in terms of trying to move towards, uh, uh, towards clean energy. And keep in mind that India currently imports almost $150 billion worth of fossil fuels. Right. The government has taken a view that we have to move towards energy security. And that is the direction in which really a lot of these decisions are being based on. Now, the $2.3 billion program for, national, for the National Green Hydrogen Mission is really a step in that direction to see how we can, first of all, convert the Indian economy from being fossil fuel dependent mm. to really becoming a little bit independent of it and also then eventually become an export destination for green hydrogen. So I think that's the general uh, effort here. But the reason I'm excited about green hydrogen is because, you know, electricity accounts for only a quarter of the entire energy consumption. Um, and energy, or as you know, carbon emissions come from all of energy, not just from electricity. Mm -hmm. So it's very important for all of us to find ways and means to address the balanced three quarters of energy uh, consumption as well and decarbonize that part of the value chain. And green hydrogen really is the basis around which we can actually develop a number of solutions to actually get there. Separate from that, the world currently consumes almost 100 million tons of grey hydrogen, which is made through very high methane-emitting uh, a process, which is actually very negative and damaging for the environment. So even just moving that from methane-based uh, hydrogen manufacturing to uh, electrolysis or clean energy-based hydrogen manufacturing itself will be a very significant move forward in our climate change efforts. Uh, you know, before even looking at the benefits of getting into a lot of the other areas around, as I said earlier, steel, shipping, and, and aviation, and so on. And, and as I said earlier, green hydrogen really is the basis for all of that. 
Absolutely. And, and just to be emphasised, that was the point of even just shifting what we've got in grey hydrogen today to green hydrogen in the future. Um, you've left me very enthusiastic and I'm being told off because I could talk to you for another hour. Um, I have to let you go. We'll, we'll reconvene very soon, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Simon Sinha there, the founder and CEO of Renew Power. And uh, I believe he's going to be in Davos as well. So I'll see you there, perhaps. Um, so as I mentioned there, I'm going to be in Switzerland next week. Some doubt as to whether there'll be any snow, of course, in our coverage. But as you can see, some on the official Davos webcam. But expect plenty of news coverage, at least, and interviews with key business leaders and politicians. So that's Davos, the International Economic Forum, next week on First Move. And of course, I'll be at the mercy of the Federal Aviation Administration to get there, which is still piecing together what happened on Tuesday when flights were grounded. The latest on that next. Welcome back to First Move, and it's a volatile open this Thursday. Stocks at the moment, as you can see, lower. Investors were, I think, optimistic to some degree about today's inflation print for December, but a lot of the good news was already in the price, and that's what you're seeing today. Now, in earnings news, shares of American Airlines more than 5% higher. The carrier lifting its Q4 profit forecast on strong demand and higher fares, and that's good news for the airlines. Now, here's the bad news. The U.S. Federal Aviation Authority is still trying to determine who was responsible for yesterday's travel chaos. One quote, damaged database file triggered a system outage and delayed thousands of flights. Pete Montine joins us now from Washington, D.C. airport with the latest. A corrupted file. What else do we know? <laughs> One file, one damaged database file here, mm. Julia. That's what took down the NOTAM system, which is so critical for pilots. It gives them that add-on information that they need before they can take off about the airport they're taking off from, the airport they're going to, the route along the way. They can't leave without it. And so the system had this meltdown yesterday, not only the main system, but also the backup system, according to multiple government sources telling us this. The FAA says it's still trying to determine where this file came from. There's an internal review taking place right now at the Department of Transportation level, also at the FAA level, that led to this 90-minute ground stop nationwide. We have not seen a nationwide ground stop airports paralyzed since the 9-11 terrorist attacks. What the big questions are now is how this took place in the first place, why the FAA got to this point, and whether or not its systems are arcane and outdated. This sets up a really interesting backdrop, Julia, about the FAA reauthorization bill that the FAA needs for its funding uh, coming up soon. This will no doubt come up. A lot of critics out there, even on Capitol Hill, saying that the FAA needs to deal with this so this doesn't happen again. Some intense debate required, certainly. Pete, great to have you with us. Thank you. Pete Montine joining us there. Now, finally, as I mentioned earlier, I'm about to head off to the World Economic Forum in Dallas. There will certainly be plenty to talk about when it comes to the state of the global economy. A freshly trimmed Romeo will be waving me off. As you can see, he's happy knowing he won't fall into a snowdrift and vanish now. And hopefully neither will I. I'll see you from the Swiss slopes next week. Connect the World with Becky Anderson. Good next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.